Today we're up to the sixth letter out of the seven letters to the churches in the letter uh, to the book of Revelations. And before I start, I do want to be honest with you all that as I was reading and preparing through this passage, it was very confrontational to me. And I think it'll be just as confrontational for me to preach to all of you. So as much as I want to capture the heart of God as I, sh- as I share this message with you all, I also hope you guys can see me from a perspective where I'm not just coming top down, pulpit down, as if I'm better than all of you, I'm holy and have it all together, but really just as a fellow brother struggling by your side, but just wanting to share the heart of God with you today. So I hope that's okay. So to start, I want to share with, uh, with you guys a little story from my high school days. So back when I was in primary school, my parents used to send me to Taekwondo classes. And as I went through the routines of the weekly uh, classes and the semester examinations, by the time I was 13, I had uh, reached a black belt level, which is a little humble brag, <laughs> but the more important thing is what happens next. So when my friends found out in school that I was a black belt, word started to spread and I started to form some reputation. People would be saying things like, hey, you don't want to mess with Arthur, he's a black belt, he's going to beat you up. And I was never the violent kind at school, but I didn't really mind the reputation because whenever our friends, because I went to an all-boys school, would muck around and stuff like that, I just have to lift up my fists, pretend to fight, and they'll be like, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry, like, leave me alone, just, just calm down. And over time, with this black belt title just looming over my head, I started to convince myself that I could actually win in a fight if I ever got into one. Then puberty struck, and everyone around me except me grew taller and grew bigger. And, and one time in year 10, I was getting to a little bit of a push and shove contest again with a mate that was way bigger than me. And another friend calls out that same line, hey mate, you don't wanna mess with Arthur, he's a black belt. But this time he wasn't intimidated. He was far too big to be scared of me. And he, he's like, you know what, try me. So now I had this reputation to uphold, right? I had to do something. So I was like, Adam, stick out your hand. And he sticks out his hand. And I try to do this thing where I learned in Taekwondo where I use my two hands and I twist his wrist and I bring him onto the ground. So I use both my hands, I use my body weight, I give it a big tug and his hand just stays unmoved. His entire, his wrist was stronger than my entire body. And then he picks me up and I just got demolished. So after that day, I realized that all this time I had deceived myself into thinking that I was strong because of some title that I had, even though that meant nothing to do with my physical strength. In the same way, but in a much more serious way, the city of Laodicea, the Christians there had fallen into the same trap of self-deception. They were so successful and so wealthy that they weren't even aware of the fact that actually they were spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus had to write them arguably the harshest letter to them out of the seven churches. So let's take a read today. Revelation chapter three, verse 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich 
and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why don't we pray? Father God, just as uh, a fellow friend just prayed for me just then, that I really am just a messenger today. So God, I pray that it is not my persuasiveness, not my eloquence of speech or lack of uh, that would convince the hearts of people today, but really may the word of God just bring forth the power that it has. So God, I just really pray uh, that this message would not become focused on what I have to say, which I believe would bring nothing but condemnation, but may the Holy Spirit be, be at work and just bring conviction into people's lives. So God, I know that you love your people, this church. So God, I pray that you'll be at work today to speak to us, challenge us, and change us from the inside out. In the name of God, I pray, amen. To give a little bit of a background to start of the city of Laodicea, uh, they were one of the wealthiest cities during the Roman times. In fact, they were so wealthy that during an earthquake that shook the entire region in AD 60, it destroyed so much of the city, but they refused imperial help, and instead with their own resources and their own manpower, they built up the entire city by themselves. They were so wealthy that they didn't even need help from other places. In their success, they were known for three particular things. The first is their financial wealth, as I just mentioned, because they were a big banking center. The second was this glossy black wool cloth that was unique in its time because they also had an extensive textile industry. And the third thing they were known for was, with, uh, was this special eye salve, which is kind of like a cream or an ointment that you put on your eyes that would cure some physical eye diseases. So, because they also had a famous medical school. So, the eye salve and the black wool were products that were being distributed globally and producing wealth for the city. So, in all aspects, you can say that the city was thriving and it was bustling and it was producing wealth for the city and they were being very, very successful. But Jesus, as the God of truth, since the beginning of time, who can see into the truth as well, sees otherwise. And he tells them, I know your deeds, the Christians in Laodicea. I know all that you claim to do for me, but you're neither cold nor hot, and because you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Now, many of us today, when we read this passage, maybe it's been explained to us in the context of coffee, that coffee should be hot or should be iced, but when it's lukewarm, it's not very nice. That is not an incorrect comparison, but it's insufficient because lukewarm coffee, although it's not ideal, it's not too bad. I have plenty of coffees with my friends where we catch up and we'll get lost in the conversation and halfway through I'm drinking my coffee and it's already lukewarm, but I can continue to drink it. But the Laodicean Christians knew exactly what Jesus was making reference to and that was their everyday drinking water. You see, despite the success of their city, one of their challenges that they had was access to drinking water. 
The closest was in the city of Hierapolis, which was nine kilometers of pipeline away, and they were a volcanic region known for their hot springs. So the hot water, the hot mineral water, they would get piped along this nine kilometer journey, and by the time it reaches the city, it would become lukewarm. And because it's mineral water, it's got the presence of sulfur inside. And sulfur, when it's nice and hot, or when it's ice cold, that taste is less evident. But when it's, uh, when it's lukewarm, the presence is so strong that it becomes really disgusting to drink. Some people would actually drink this water at its lukewarm state, be so fouled by the taste that they would vomit it all out. And that's the picture that the Christians at the time had in mind. So we often think that this lukewarm Christian is kind of like this middle scale between the cold non-believer to the hot, zealous Christian, and that, you know, at least you're halfway. You know, Jesus, as if Jesus is saying, oh, I'm glad you're here, but it would just be a little bit nicer if you took a few steps this way. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying there's something critically wrong with you guys that as you drink this lukewarm water, it's disgusting and useless to you. You wouldn't drink it at this state. And in the same way, there's something critically wrong that your current deeds for me is useless and disgusting. It's a very, very harsh rebuke. So what exactly was wrong? Their words in the next verse reveals it themselves. So Jesus quotes the Laodiceans in verse 17, and he says, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. You see, the Laodiceans were so proud of their success and their wealth, and the success in their business gave them this false sense of security that they had everything they needed. And what that ended up leading to was because they were so dependent on this that it turned them away from their need for Jesus. Essentially, their attitude can be summarized in this way, that they, they became indifferent in a way because they were so dependent on something else that they no longer needed Jesus. And in this case, their dependence was on their wealth. So if Jesus can bless them, great, they'll take it. But if Jesus can't, that's okay. They still have money, they've still got wealth, that can keep them going. And that was the attitude that they had. They were indifferent. And that's the danger. Because being lukewarm is not so much about how much you're doing for God, because given the success of their marketplace, one could suggest that they were equally hardworking in their church setting and in their ministries as well. But it's not so much about how much you're doing. Jesus is not saying, I want you to do more for me. Jesus is saying there's something critically wrong with your heart condition. It's not about the matter of the hands, it's an issue of the heart. So while they measured their life by human standards, God is saying, I can see you from a spiritual perspective. And he uses exact opposite words to describe them. So they thought they were content and that they were happy with where they are, that they were proud of their wealth, their eye salves and their clothes. And Jesus uses the exact opposite words to challenge them and says, you are naked, oh, sorry, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Contrary to their own opinion, they were in a critical state that needed some change. So with all this in mind, the first of two points that I believe Jesus wanted to say to the Laodiceans through this letter that applies to us as believers today is this. Don't be deceived by counterfeit gods. Don't be deceived by counterfeit gods. 
Back when I was in uh, my old church in Netherlands, I had a friend who was already a prominent youth leader when I had already uh, joined the church. And he was very involved, and as a result, I really looked up to him. But over time, I noticed that there were some changes to his character and to his priorities. What happened was that he found a job at a bar and he started to uh, work more shifts there and made good friends um, with, the, with his bar friends that would invite him to his drinking and clubbing sessions. And over time, something started to change. He would start sleeping in and coming late on Sundays, some days not at all. He would step down from some of his church roles and commitments. His uh, language started to become more inappropriate. There would be more coarse joking, uh, more inappropriate use of words. And eventually his decisions became more questionable as well. And then one day, as I drove to church for a worship rehearsal, I was the first one there, and at the front lawn of the church, I saw this big cardboard box, and I opened it up, and I saw just a whole heap of Christian books and a little note at the top, and the note said, from my friend, this is a donation to the church because I don't need it anymore. And then when I lifted the note up, the very top book that I saw in the top of the pile was his Bible. And as I look back to that day, it was a defining day for me because it just made me think, how sad is it that someone who was so hot for Jesus could change and grow so cold? What happened along the way? Because around that time, I had just gone on my knees and surrendered to Christ for the first time, and I was slowly learning how precious it is to have Jesus in my life. And for him to give away his Bible is a very clear statement that he no longer associates himself to Jesus and to the Christian faith anymore. And that, I think, is a very sad but real image of where a lukewarm faith can lead you. You deceive yourself into thinking that something else can satisfy you more than Jesus can, when in actual fact, they are counterfeits. It's called counterfeit God for a reason because it makes you believe that it's more important than God and can offer you something that actually only God can, when in reality, it's doing nothing but deceiving you. So for my friend, it was the counterfeit God of friendship. And for the Laodiceans, it was the counterfeit God of wealth. And Jesus, this whole time, was left outside the church, knocking on the door, saying, don't be deceived by these counterfeit gods. They don't satisfy you the way I can. I can bring you so much more. Let me back in your life. And as I prepared for this message, one of the things I knew I had to do was actually to ask myself, are there counterfeit gods in my life? And I asked my wife, Christy, because if there was anyone I couldn't fool, it would be my wife who now lives with me every single day of my life. And Christy thought about it and she goes, you value comfort a lot. And I thought about it and she was absolutely right, as wives supposedly always are. So, <laughs> I thought about it and I realized putting aside my natural desire for sleep and restful activities, one of the things I would really struggle to obey God with was if he ever changed my calling and asked me to become a missionary at a developing nation with a low standard of living. Because I, as I am now, I don't want to shower in cold water. I don't want to sleep in a slightly unclean mattress. And I don't want to get bitten by mosquitoes just because my house is not properly sealed off. There is this sense of satisfaction that I believe comfort can offer me 
in a way that really is pulling me away from wanting to give my all to Jesus and to step into the center of God's will, if that was his calling. And that's the danger when there's something in our lives that is competing with our love for God. And in fact, we value it even more so that when there is that tension between obeying God and choosing what you think will satisfy, you end up choosing the latter. And over time, that can lead you into realizing that in your life, you no longer need Jesus anymore. But that is nothing but a lie. So after some serious reflection, which I admittedly did while lying on my bed with my eyes closed, um, I realized I had placed comfort as a counterfeit God. So I had to pray, uh, repent to God, and just ask God to change my heart. And I picked up my guitar, I sang some worship songs just to dedicate a moment to him. And that has only been three days ago. So I'm not here to tell you that I have completely put that aside and I'm now all okay. Um, but I do believe repentance is a genuine turning away from the thing that has distracted you and facing Jesus. And it starts with your daily small decisions. So I hope you can all keep me accountable in this area as well. Now, the thing about counterfeit gods is that they're not inherently bad things. It's not like God is against comfort. So I don't wanna give off this wrong idea that God just wants you to suffer and suffer and suffer just for the sake of suffering. But it's just that when we love something and desire it more than God, then it becomes a counterfeit because it's taking your focus away from Him. So these seemingly good things and counterfeit gods can be good things as well. They are good things and that's why they're so deceptive. But if you over idolize them, then they become dangerous. So the question for us today is this, are there counterfeit gods in our lives that is causing us to be indifferent for Jesus? Are there counterfeit gods in your life that is causing you to be indifferent for Jesus? For some of us, it may be the image of success. For students, the desire for good grades can consume you. And for the young adults like myself, our desire to have appeared to have made it in life can once again consume you as well. These desires could be things like landing a good grad job. It could be things like getting a property, owning a property before you get married. It could be things like being one of the younger ones to land a promotion to show that you are a competent employee. When these things get valued and placed above God, falsely promising you that this can satisfy you, they become a counterfeit God. Now, that's not to say that Christians shouldn't work hard, and I want to make this clear, because I believe Christians should be one of the most hardworking and persevering people in this planet, because we believe what we do matters for the eternal, and that should motivate us more than anything else. But if your success determines your satisfaction and self-worth, you have made it a counterfeit God. For others, you may not be the ambitious type, but you could treat some of your relationships, whether it's your friends, whether it's your partner, whether it's your spouse, or whether it's your children, as a counterfeit God as well, to meet your desire to feel loved, to feel valued, to feel needed, and to feel in control. Christy and I caught up with a voluntary worship pastor couple from another church a few weeks ago, and the husband was very honest in acknowledging, admitting that in the past, he had placed his wife as his counterfeit God because he was more after her approval and her love than, than God's. And once again, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't love your wife. Loving God and loving your wife is not mutually exclusive. 
But if your motivation to love someone, hypothetically your wife, is to meet your desire to feel loved, you will fall short. Firstly, you'll be disappointed by uh, the imperfections of the other person because the other person is not God and they will let you down. But secondly, it may even make you less loving in the long term. Why? Because your love for the person would only extend as far as until your satisfaction of being loved is met. It becomes a conditional exchange where I will love you so that you will love me back. And the moment you feel loved, there'll be no more reason to love beyond that point. But when you fervently follow after God and you embrace His unconditional love into your life, you start to realize how unconditional this love is and you respond by loving God wholeheartedly and you love the people around you unconditionally as well. You end up becoming more zealous for God whilst becoming more loving to the people around you. But if you place someone as your counterfeit God, you end up with neither of those outcomes. So are there counterfeit gods in our lives that is causing us to be indifferent for Jesus? And that's a question you would have to answer for yourself. So for those of you who are resonating with this question right now and are saying, yeah, I think I'm in this category, first of all, can I just acknowledge that and just commend that? Because it takes a lot of humility to confront the messiness of your heart and acknowledge that there is brokenness and say, I want to do something about it because there will be just as many people who would hear this message intellectually, justify with their minds why this message is more for someone else and not for them, and do nothing about it. So for you to be so honest with yourself, I just want to commend you. But far more important than my commendation is what Jesus has to say to you. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus isn't just revealing an issue and go, here, deal with it yourself. He offers us guidance and he gives us hope. And that's my second point for today. Come back to Jesus, who satisfies eternally. Verse 18, it says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Notice that to counteract the very three things that the Laodiceans place their security and comfort in, Jesus is using the exact same three in the opposite way to say, no, come to me for the real deal because I can offer you so much more. Don't look to your wealth because that may give you security for the next few decades, but come to me to cultivate genuine faith that will be refined in trials and persecutions because the Bible says that is more valuable than gold and it will last in light of eternity. And don't go to your black clothes. You think that covers you, but you're nonetheless still shameful in the sight of God who is holy and righteous. Instead, come wear this white robe that I can give you based on the penalty of sin that I have paid for on the cross. And this symbolizes the righteousness you now have, and it will cover your sin and your shame. So come wear this instead. And don't look to your eye salves either. They won't do you any good. They may help you to see physically for a little while, but I can help you to see spiritually for the things that truly matters. And that essentially is the gospel, isn't it? That knowing that on our own, even our best deeds are lukewarm to God. The Bible says that all our righteous acts are filthy rags and that we desperately need Jesus because only Jesus can save and only he can fully satisfy. Now, 
and forever. So if there are counterfeit gods in our lives that is causing our faith to be lukewarm, Jesus is saying to us, those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent and come back to me because I can eternally satisfy. And this is the part that's really interesting because the passage takes a little change in tone. Jesus now reminds the later saints that I am rebuking you, I am challenging you because I love you. The word, the heart of God is to reach out and to love these lukewarm Christians even if they do not love him back. Isn't that amazing? It's the same heart of God we see in the parable of the prodigal son where the wayward son was not deserving of forgiveness, but the father loved him so much that he was sitting waiting for the son to come back. And the moment he appeared around from the corner, he gets up, runs to him and welcomes him back. And the word love here is the Greek word phileo which speaks of the affection and the fondness of a deep friendship. So he's not saying, I agape you, which is saying, I will unconditionally love you regardless of your mistakes, although that's a true attribute of God as well. What he is saying is, I still deeply care for you as a friend. I still really want to have a relationship with you. So will you come back to me? God is not just a God who's high and mighty telling us what we're doing wrong. He wants to be up and close and personal with us to have this relationship with us and allow that relationship to change us. And that is the heart of God for us today as well. For those of us who have counterfeit gods in our lives and have become lukewarm, maybe you're not even sure what the counterfeit God may be, but you just know something is hindering your relationship with God. And this rebuke from Jesus is necessary for you because he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. He's outside knocking on the church doors, waiting for us to open this door so he can come in and have an unhurried time of fellowship with us. He starts this letter addressing it to the entire church of Laodicea. Now he is speaking to every single individual. And he's saying, will you open the door? Will you turn back to me? And will you come out of your lukewarm state and follow me fervently again? And he's saying that one faithful person could have the possibility of reviving the entire church from this state. So what he's saying is that you turning back to Jesus today has a greater implication than just your own life. It could greatly bless and impact the brothers and sisters around you as well. And for those of us who overcome this incredible challenge of indifference, Jesus says that we are victorious in God's sight and will receive the right to sit with Jesus on his throne, which is amazing because the Laodicea was the worst of the seven churches, but they were given the greatest promise out of the seven, showing us that it's possible for even the worst of us to be repentant, to experience victory, and then to receive the highest state of glory. So with that, I want to wrap up today by sharing the last verse of this passage. This is the verse that I felt God prompt me on again and again and again as I prepared for this message, so I can't not share this. Uh, There's nothing unique about this verse because it actually comes up in every single one of the seven letters to the seven churches, but I just want to take a bit of time to explain why it's so significant. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
This is a phrase that Jesus said on multiple occasions to either the crowd when he was teaching or to his disciples. And essentially what he's saying is this, as long as you have ears, which is a symbolic way to symbolize everyone, I'm speaking to you. This is an important message that I'm speaking to you for you to listen and act on. It's a warning. It's a saying, this is important. Take careful attention. But we know, unfortunately, from the Old Testament with the Israelites to the Pharisees in the New Testament to even the believers today, many people hear God's warning and loving counsel and they make a decision to choose not to obey. And this is the same warning that Jesus is giving us. The message is clear. Jesus wants us to turn away from our counterfeit gods and to turn to him, to come back to him in repentance. So the question is not so much whether Jesus is clear. The question is whether we as believers have the humility to not just listen and forget, but to listen and obey. And for some of you, maybe you have been listening to the last five messages in this series academically, and found the sermons interesting, but you haven't actually genuinely taken the time to listen to God, seek Him, and ask Him to assess your heart condition. And Jesus is calling out to you and I, to His people, and He's saying, listen up, because this is not an empty warning. Because if you believe that the reward for faithful living is infinitely rich, you have to also believe that the consequence of disobedience is infinitely catastrophic. And Jesus is saying, he's pleading to us, whoever has ears, let them hear. Don't let my word just come back void. Let it take root in your heart. Let it actually change you because he loves us and that's why he's giving us this warning. And that's the plead that he's giving to each one of us today and to each one of the letters, uh, each one of the churches in his letters that he's addressing to. Please, listen. So, one of the things I mentioned earlier was that there are the faithful few who would open the door and that can impact the church. And this is a very last minute decision, but if it's okay, I'm gonna ask the worship team back and just to sing us a song again, because I know the worship team and I know Lester's heart. He is on fire for God like you would not believe. And I believe that they can sing and lead us into a song as an act of intercession and as a pleading from God and may we allow this worship to just bypass the intellectual and go straight into our hearts so that we will listen to the word of God that will come back in repentance and turn to him once more. So if it's okay, as Lester leads us in this song, you can sing along or you can just listen to it as if it's a prayer for yourself as well. Thank you. Jesus be the center of your church Jesus be the center of your church And every knee will bow And every tongue 
shall confess you, Jesus. Jesus, sing that again. Jesus, be the center of your church. Jesus, be the center of your church. And every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess you, Jesus. Jesus, may this your prayer. Jesus, be the center of your church. Jesus, be the center of your church. And every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess you, Jesus. Jesus, we sing Jesus, Jesus. We sing Jesus, we sing Jesus. You're the cry of our hearts today. You're the center of it all today, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. standing and with your hearts submitted to God, eyes closed, heads bowed, whoever has ears, let them hear. This morning, I believe God is asking us to humble ourselves before Him. And if there is something that is causing us to be indifferent towards God because we're placing our trust our security and our dependence on something else more than God, He's asking us to repent and to come back to Him, to not be deceived. 
And there are two groups of people that I would like to speak to today. And if you fall into one of these two groups in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand up high before God. And I'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. The first group of people are for those of you who do have a counterfeit God in your life. Whether it's the counterfeit God of money, or of success, or of comfort, or of, uh, of relationships, or even of self-dependence. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. But what is important is that today you're willing to repent before God and say, God, I am sorry, and I'm coming back to You. Help me to change my heart. The second group of people are for those of you who for some time you have been indifferent and maybe you've justified your way out because you compare yourself to other Christians and say, at least I'm not like them. But deep down, you know you have been indifferent towards Jesus for quite a long time. And contrary to your usual indifference, for some reason, God is stirring in your heart today to say, I want more of Jesus. I don't want to be where I am. I want to be hot. I don't want to just be okay. I don't want just to be satisfactory. I want whatever I can get from Jesus because I know no one else can satisfy me the way Jesus can. And if you do have that nudge from your heart, I believe that's the Holy Spirit nudging you out of His love and grace to say, you can do better. You can't do this by yourself. I can help you. And this life that you can have is so much richer when it's with me than without. And He's saying, you have been indifferent for a while, but it's okay. You don't know what the next steps are, but that's okay too. I just want you to come back to me. He's saying, will you do that today? So if you resonate with these two groups, can I ask you to just raise your hand up nice and high now? And for those of you who are watching from platform, from home, if that's you as well, raise your hand up nice and high. This is a sign of surrender before God to say, God, I need you again. I don't want to be where I am anymore. And if that's you, if you have just raised your hand, just know that God sees that and just join me in this prayer. Father God, I'm so sorry for all the days that I chose to live without You. I'm so sorry for finding things that satisfy me more than You and really believing and being deceived that it does. And God, I can't do this by myself because by myself, I'm gonna continue to do this. I'm gonna continue to rebel You, continue to turn away from You, continue to find solutions by my own strength. And I don't want to do that anymore whatever it is that is causing me to be indifferent, whatever it is that is giving me this false satisfaction, God, help me turn away from it. Change my heart from the inside out. Help me pursue You like never before. Help me see that just being a little bit hot for You is not enough, that I want to be as zealous for You as I can be. Help me to be like the Apostles Paul, Apostle Paul and all the other Christian heroes in this place when no matter how much they have to sacrifice, it is nothing but a privilege to them because serving You is the greatest thing we can do on this side of eternity. And help us to see that though some things are challenging now, that the reward of faithful living is infinitely rich 
and that is the motivation for me to keep going, even if there are times when I tempted to fall for something else. So God, I'm so sorry, but will you just come in and change my heart and show me what my next few steps of obedience can look like? God, I want to follow you afresh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For those of you who just prayed that prayer, especially those of you online or streaming, may I just encourage you that the time of ministry for you is not over. Go find someone next to you or go talk to your cell leader or your pastor and just ask them to spend some time to just talk to you, talk you through the decision you just made and pray. And likewise, those of you who are in this space with me right now, don't let it end here. Don't just walk out as if nothing has changed. Take the time to sit down, pray with God and ask Him to reveal what is broken about your heart right now that needs changing. And if you need someone to pray with you, I'm sure your brothers and sisters around you or your cell group leader, or if you would like, come to the front and I would be more than happy to pray with you as well. Let God do this work in your heart because no one else can. And let's be a church that is not just lukewarm, but on fire for Jesus in a way that would change our brothers and sisters in a way where the people around us will see the attractiveness of Jesus through how much He's doing in our lives as well. So no one will see us and see that this Jesus is not worth pursuing. We all have friends like the friend I just mentioned. Let's do what we can to live this life, to show the world that Jesus is the one way, the truth, the way and the life and He's worthwhile for now and eternity. So God, thank You so much. I'm just gonna close us in another prayer and I'd love to keep this space as a little ministry space for those who want some time with God, but there are plenty of space in the foyer for those who are okay as well. So God, we love You and we're just so thankful for today. We're just so glad that Your Word has so much power and it can speak through such imperfect people. So God, I just pray that You continue to show us how incredible You are, how loving You are, how much You desire us and how much You can change our lives so that we can be glorified now and in heaven as well. Help us to live this obedient life. God, we love You so much. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.